you have your Bible, please open it to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll be at the very end of that chapter. I want to ask you a question about your childhood. Maybe you're still one of them. So if you're a child or the rest of us that formerly were one, I want you to think about the home you grew up in. Kind of what it looked like, smelled like, what you remember about it, where it was on the street, where your neighbors and friends lived. But I want you to think on the inside of the walls of your childhood home, not necessarily the furniture, the pictures, or where your bedroom or the kitchen was, but I want you to think about your house rules, how you all did life, or if you're a kid now, how you guys do life within your home. Well, in this room, we probably do life largely the same. So there's so many similarities, but the more we spend time with each other, the more we'll be able to see the nuances of difference. Not right or wrong, provided they're not sinful, differences. Not right or wrong, but just different. Gloriously different. Insofar as those differences are not sinful, it's perfectly okay to do nuances differently. One of the things that those of us who are former children learn as we grow up is that the differences in the way I did life in my home and the way you did life in your home were different. And one of the things that spouses quickly learn is how different the differences were about the nuances of life in the home, the house rules, the unspoken things about the way you roll. Our passage today describes you, I mean you all, y'all, as the house of God. And it tells us the rules. It tells us the family rules, the household of God and how we ought to conduct ourselves. So Paul writes this passage so that Christians will know how to live for God's glory in God's house. 1 Timothy chapter 3, let your eyes fall on verse 14 and open your soul to receive the words of God. 1 Timothy 3, 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's Word. Join me again at the throne of grace. We're going to ask for His help one more time. Father, we thank You that You are the living God. No one else is like You. And we ask that You would Dominate the hearts of this church with the truth of the gospel. 
that you would cause this faith family to live in light of the gospel and to proclaim the message of the gospel. We ask that you would forgive us, please, Lord, for simultaneously calling ourselves Christians without being transformed by Christ's life and power, for making excuses for far too long. We ask that you would prove that we are your people by making this church look more like your son. The way we relate to each other, the way we do life together would be saturated with Jesus and that you would use us to point our neighbors and the nations to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So three verses, two parts. Verse 14 and 15. Verse 16. Verse 14 and 15, conduct. Verse 16, confession. Verse 14 and 15, how we are to live. Verse 16, why? But lest we miss the forest for the trees and just say, okay, this is what 14 and 15 are about. This is what 16 are about. Let's make sure we understand how this passage relates to the rest of the book. This is the purpose statement of the whole letter. This is why Paul wrote 1 Timothy. He says a lot of things in chapters 1 to 3 that pour into this passage. He says a lot of things in 4 to 6 that flow from this passage. But everything we've talked about before and all we're going to talk about after is grounded in these verses. In fact, Paul said in verse 15, I write so that. Why did he write? So that one would know how to conduct himself in the household of God. That's why he wrote the book. So what we see in this passage is that a Christian's conduct, verses 14 and 15, is grounded in God's conduct, verse 16. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 16, is the bedrock and the soil from which the church derives her life and our actions. So, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 16, drives how we are to live as his people, verse 15. Who God is, the living God. And because of what God has done, verse 16, saving us in his Son, Christians must therefore live our lives as his church. We must conduct ourselves accordingly. Our message, gospel truth, Verse 15 and 16, shape the way we live. Verse 14 and 15. So that's how these verses work. That's what this book is all about. This is the key passage of the book. Verse 15 is the purpose statement of the book. Let's not get it wrong in that sense. The two things that we see, I think you could say it this way. Verse 14 and 15 are about the culture, the house rules. When I talked earlier about the nuances of difference in your childhood and my childhood, how you grew up and she grew up and he grew up and they grew up, but then you get together and you start to realize there's some differences. The house rules, our conduct, verse 14 and 15, is driven by the content, verse 16 of the gospel. So to put it negatively, we could say it this way. If we as a church live in a way that is out of sync, out of step, out of compliance, out of agreement, not in harmony with the character of Jesus, 
verse 16, then we're not under grace. We're under delusion. If we profess to believe Christ's gospel and live differently than Christ himself, that's a problem. That's a negative. Positively, we can say it this way. Nowhere on earth should the beauty and grace and love and mercy and truth and holiness and purity and humility and submission and meekness and dependence and altogether loveliness of Jesus be more clearly seen under heaven than in the lives of a local church filled with people who belong to Jesus. That's what the passage is about. Biblical gospel content, verse 16 marked by beautiful gospel culture, verse 14 and 15. So we'll take 14 and 15, the church's conduct, that gospel culture, and then verse 16, gospel content. First, verse 14 and 15. The church's conduct. Whose we are, therefore how we live. Now look at verse 14 and 15 again, it's short enough, let's reread it. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So there's two things there in verse 14 and 15. First, Paul plans to visit, and second, Paul's purpose for writing. So he wanted to come. That's pretty obvious. Verse 14. He hoped to return to Ephesus. He wanted to see Timothy. He wanted to see the church again. He wanted to spend time with the Lord's people. He wanted to spend time with his younger brother, his protege, his disciple in the faith, Timothy, who was their pastor. There is no indication, if you look at the narrative of the book of Acts and the travels of the Apostle Paul, there's no indication anywhere in the Bible he was ever able to make that trip. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. We can also deduce, though, from verses 14 and 15, that Paul's hope to visit Ephesus was not for vacation. It was for ministry. He was carrying out what the Old Testament prophets often referred to as Zechariah 12, the burden of the word of the Lord. I need to talk to you, Timothy. I need to share something with the church there, Timothy. He's under a divine burden. There was something so pressing on his mind and his heart for the church at Ephesus that for them to hear it couldn't wait. It couldn't wait until he was able to visit them. It was too important. It was too urgent. It was too essential. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you just had to tell somebody something? And the longer you waited, the greater your burden became? Until eventually you conceded that a face-to-face -face conversation, though ideal, was not going to be possible to hold out for any longer. So you wrote a letter to try to express your desire, your happy burden, or your grievous burden. But either way, you had to get it out. Well, because Paul wrote this letter, we can also deduce that because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God knew that his church needed to hear this message before Paul could wait to visit them. They needed it and they needed it now. So Paul planned to visit, but he writes to them and he tells the purpose for writing. That's the second part of this first point. 
I write because in case I'm delayed, I want you to know something. How one, that someone, it may be Timothy in particular, but it's probably the church in total. He's just talked about the men, the women, the pastors, the deacons, and I'm writing so that you all will know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. The summary of what Paul says is that what we do depends on what we are. Or to put it more precisely, whose we are. What we do, how we conduct ourselves, should have a direct connect to the God to whom we belong. Now, I'm not sure if your parents or grandparents ever gave you the uh, age-old line that many of us got. It was a solid warning when you were about to go to so-and-so's house. Maybe you're going to spend the night or on a special trip with them or just to be with them for the afternoon, but grandma pulled you aside and said, you better behave yourself because you're a, and then you fill in the blank with the family name. You're a Thomas. You represent us. They expected something of you. Even if nobody else acted right, grandma expected you to act right because you're one of them. To put it another way, what you do while you carry the family name reflects on all who carry the family name. So grandma wanted you to act right. Paul describes what the church should do, their conduct, on the basis of whose they are, to whom they belong, whose name it is they bear. If you're a Christian, just look at who you are. Look at whose you are. There are three descriptions. Two are descriptions. One is a duty, a job. Verse 15 has them all. The first description points at the Christian family that belongs to God the Father. Now listen carefully to the nuance. The first one in verse 15 points to the Christian family that belongs to God the Father, while the second in verse 15 points at God the Father of the Christian family. So the first is a look at the family that belongs to him, and the second is a look at him to whom the family belongs. And then third is our mission or purpose as a local church that belong to that living God. Let's take them one at a time. You are the household of God. Verse 15. How one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That's who you are. Household, in this verse, is not referring to the building, it's not the brick and mortar, it's not the structure, it's the people. The Christians who were the members of the church at Ephesus, those people, in God's estimation, are God's house. Now you know what that means. Preach the sermon to your soul before I say it. Tell yourself the truth before you hear my mouth say it to you in agreement. You're where God lives. You're where God dwells. If this is true of you, this is true of others, then this necessarily means we're a family. We're His home. We're where God abides. The astonishing, sobering, awe-inspiring, exhilarating truth of the New Testament 
is that the local church is the dwelling place of the infinite, incomprehensible God of the universe. We are the dwelling place of God. We, local churches, are His house. If we believe this, it would cause us to walk with fear and trembling before God and before one another. Not a fear of each other, but a holy reverence. A reverential respect for God, the family name that manifests itself in a sacred, wholesome, holy, upbuilding, others-oriented, what can I do to serve you treatment of one another for God's sake. You're His house. God lives here. I don't know who you greeted when you walked in the door, but God was between you and every one of them. Paul wrote to the Corinthians the same idea. He asks them a series of rhetorical questions in the negative. Do you not know? He's grabbing them by the collar. He's shaking them. He's trying to wake them up because the Corinthian church had all kind of infighting and squabbles and problems. They were at each other's throat. You know what you cannot do? If you believe God is between you and your brother or sister, you can't treat them like he's not there. Do you not know that you, plural, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, plural? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and, is, and that is what you, plural, are. Peter uses the same phrase in 1 Peter 4. Household of God to refer not to individual Christians, but to local churches that were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So what Paul is emphasizing to Timothy in this first description, whose you are, what you are, is that we are where God lives. Now one of the most fascinating, not just for a new Bible trivia, but fascinating in terms of edifying, life-changing, truly transforming studies of Scripture that I've ever done is to trace the theme from the beginning to the end of the Bible of where God is most comfortable. Where does God love to show up? You know what you feel like when you're at home and no guests are around, it's just you or your family? You're you. You're comfortable. You're at home. Where is God at home? To put all the Bible data into a little phrase, it would be His temple. But you start studying in Scripture where God is at home, where God resides, where His glory is known. And I can take you from the beginning of, to the end of the Bible in about 10 seconds. Eternity past is His temple. The Garden of Eden was his temple. The tabernacle, an Old Testament temple, that's where he's at home. Christians are his temple. The New Testament church is his temple. And eternity future is his temple. That's where God is at home. That's where he's at rest. That's where he dwells. In a high and holy place. And with the humble and contrite of spirit, God is at home. 
Dear Christians, the Bible is clear that God dwells within each individual believer. This verse is not about that. The Bible is even more dominated with the reality that the assembly of God's people is his special dwelling place. Just like he takes up residence in you when you become a Christian, he regenerates you. Kids, if mom or dad are a Christian, what happened to them is that God regenerated them. God made them alive from the dead spiritually, and Jesus lives inside your mom. That needs to happen to you. This verse is about God doing that to a collection of people. Just like the Old Testament saints would assemble at feasts, they would all come to the temple for various celebrations. Why would they come? Because God was there. So also New Testament Christians are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because Jesus is here. It's His covenant presence. We're not being superstitious. He's closer to you right now than the chair in which you sit. Jesus promised to be here. He's not a figment of your imagination and you don't have to conjure Him up. The King of the universe is here. If that doesn't provoke someone to prioritize barring almost death, doing everything they can to gather with a local church for the worship of the risen Jesus, nothing else ever will. If I told you that Jesus was preaching next Sunday, would you be here? Hebrews 2 says when the church gets together, Jesus proclaims the name of God and sings the praises of God. Go read Hebrews 2. So you're the house of God. This is where he lives, the second description. Verse 15, you're the assembly of the living God. You're the church of the living God. So the first description landed the accent mark on the church being God's house. The second description lands the accent on the God of the house. You're where he lives. That's who you are. Now look at who he is. He is the living God. We are his assembly, his church. The statement is a clear contrast between the God of the Bible and every other so-called God. They are dead. He is alive. Paul's drawing the reader to consider all the so-called gods. And the long, sad story of humans who have sought to live apart from the living God. The city of Ephesus, where Paul had spent three and a half years, he knew full well there was a big temple in the middle of it to the so-called God Artemis, also known as Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Paul is asserting that Artemis is dead. Just like all the pagan gods of the Old Testament, all the false deities that all of human history has tried to give their attention, adoration, praise, worship to, they are all deaf, they are dumb, they are blind, they are dead. Not only is Paul contrasting the true God to the false deities of the Greek pantheon like Artemis and Diana, 
when he says, you're the church of the living God, he's hearkening their minds back to the Old Testament theme of all those dead and rotten, dusty deities of all the pagan nations. He's reminding them that they belong to the God who mowed down mountains and lifted up valleys and cut out a highway in the middle of the forest to carry his people through. They belong to him. It reminds me of when Elijah was talking to the pagan prophets of Baal. And he wasn't trying to find out where Baal was. He knew there was no other God besides the one true God. But when they were doing all their gesticulations and chants and all kind of incantations and prayers, but Baal was nowhere to be found, Elijah asked them in 1 Kings 18.27, sarcastically, maybe he'd gone to the bathroom. He's gone. He's dead. Isaiah 44 comes to mind. Listen to the foolishness. There's a man who goes out to the forest and he cuts down cedar trees for himself. Or he takes a cypress tree or an oak tree after he raises it in the forest, after he plants a fir tree, and the rain makes it grow, then he needs something to burn. So he takes one of those trees and he warms himself. With it, he makes a fire to bake bread. He also, from the other end of the same log, makes a god and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Half of it, over half of it, he roasts meat to eat and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of the log he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Do you see the absurdity? What Paul's saying to the church at Ephesus, you're the assembly, you're the collection. That's the word church, ecclesia, assembly. You're the gathered assembly of the only God who's alive. Grace Church, why did Christians in the first century when the letter to Ephesians was written, remind yourself, why did they begin meeting on the first day of the week? Why did they transition from the Sabbath on Saturday to the Lord's Day on Sunday? Because when a few people went to a tomb outside the city of Jerusalem that belonged to a rich man named Joseph, nobody was there on Sunday morning. Jesus got up from the dead on Sunday morning. He's the living God. And Paul was eager to remind the church at Ephesus, you are God's house. He lives there. And he's alive. Nobody is like him. So with those two descriptions of who they are and whose they are and who God is, he gives them in the third description of verse 15, their marching orders, their job. Churches are, verse 15, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, wouldn't it be inconsistent of God, for God, to care less about how His people conduct themselves, if they are the pedestal 
that upholds His glory to be seen in the world? It's not a testament of their greatness. It's a testament to His greatness and of His purpose for them. Our job, our mission is to hold up, to proclaim, to let the whole world see, to not hide under a bushel the light of the universe. We are to support and hold up the truth. Verse 15, the pillar and support of the truth. We're to be and to do something that reveals the truth of who God is. So we've established God lives with us and that He's alive. Now we're looking at our job, our calling. This is how we are to to conduct ourselves. Everything about our relationships are to be part of the pith of the tree, strengthening the trunk to hold up the reality of who God is so that all within the family can see Him clearly and all outside the family can know Him accurately. God has entrusted His name and His character. God has entrusted His gospel message to His churches. If we abdicate our responsibility to uphold the truth, who else is going to do it? There's no other institution under heaven that's going to preserve and propagate the truth of the gospel other than churches. God's using Christians in all manner of ways, and He's using even parachurch organizations in a variety of glorious ways. But the church alone is the living organism of the living God entrusted with the sacred task of preserving and propagating the truth of God. I love in this verse you can discern from the context, it's not the pastor's responsibility only. Timothy, you uphold the truth. You be the pillar of the truth. Know the church. It's our responsibility. When the pastor stops preaching the truth, get another one. Because the truth promoted and propagated is what matters. Just like the glory of God was entrusted to Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, and it was set upon a table in the Holy of Holies, and God shined out from that place for all to see in a pillar and a cloud. So the glory of God in the Gospel of Christ has been handed to you. Are your hands trustworthy? Do you care about God and about His glory and about His Gospel? more than you care about anything else in the universe. God gave you the charge of holding up the truth in this dark and dying world. One author said, God has entrusted to the church the task of promoting and protecting the gospel It's been said that the gospel is always one generation away from extinction. If we burn all our Bibles and close all our mouths and don't tell anybody else the gospel, then if everybody else joined us in that endeavor, the gospel would be gone in the next generation. But God will see to it that some of His churches continue to tell His truth in every generation until Christ returns. And one of the surest marks of the judgment of God on any generation 
is when they stop holding the truth high and they stop calling people to the God of truth. Our Lord Jesus' name is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Jesus told the woman at the well, the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Our culture is to be drenched as a church. Our family rules, our way of life, our house rules, our culture is to be drenched in whose we are. We are the place God lives, and our God is alive, and our job is to hold His truth high. That leads to the bedrock. That's the second and final point. Verse 16, not our conduct, but our confession. Now before I go to this glorious verse, verse 16, one of the great 316s of the Bible, before I go to 1 Timothy 3.16, if you believe verse 15 is who we are and to whom we belong, it's going to absolutely dictate the way you relate to that sister in the church or talk about that brother in the church because all of us have this same confession. Here it is, verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Six parallel statements about the greatest news in the universe. But it opens with that line, common confession, great mystery of godliness. That means that the churches of the first century held this in common. They agreed. This is a common, this is a familiar statement. Perhaps it was a hymn that was sung by the early church or a creed or a confession, something perhaps that they recited on Sundays. But we know that Paul thought that they were familiar with this phrase. This is common. And great mystery of godliness. Great gigantic, huge, mega, that God has revealed, no longer mysterious, what godliness is. This great mystery of godliness comes in these next six phrases. What is it? It is to use big words that we hear almost exclusively at church, Christology and soteriology. The doctrine of Christ, Christology, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. That's what these six lines are all about. This is the heart of the Christian faith. This is the content of the Christian message. This is the truth that churches are commanded by God to put on a pedestal to support. The pillar of our life together and the way we relate to each other should especially and ultimately be seeking to ensure that this message is held high, undiluted. Can everybody see? Is anything we're doing and the way we're acting distorting anybody's vision from seeing this message? This is what we put on the pedestal. This is the message we're to support. I was helped by George Knight, New International Greek Testament commentary, who sees these six as three couplets, two, two, two. The first two statements about Christ's work, what he accomplished. The second two statements about Christ being made known. And the last 
two statements, numbers five and six, about the response to Christ being made known. His work, Him being made known, and the response to Him being made known. Look at them. Stanza one, what Christ accomplished. Two statements, He was revealed in the flesh. He was vindicated in the Spirit. Revealed in the flesh. Dear ones, this is the opening line of the confession that speaks to the most stupefying miracle of all. God became a man. This is about the incarnation of Christ that without forfeiting or relinquishing any of His deity, without sacrificing any of His eternality, without offloading any of His omnipresence, without relinquishing any of His omnipotence, without forgetting any of His omniscience, the eternal God poured all of Himself into humanity. Jesus was revealed in the flesh. This is the oh-so-precious truth. This is the miracle of miracles that God would retain His deity while taking on humanity. Colossians 2.9, the fullness of deity dwelt in Him bodily. The baby in the manger. Simultaneously, the King of the universe. He was revealed in the flesh. That statement, I believe, carries through His earthly life and ministry. Those early years of obscurity until He eventually bursts onto the scene at His baptism at around age 30. His three and a half or so years of public ministry leading all the way up to His ignominious death when He was mutilated on a tree outside of Jerusalem by people who thought that they were doing away from, with Him because they couldn't stand Him anymore. But the book of Acts tells us so beautifully that what those sinful men did with their sinful hands was perfectly in accord with God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. God wrote the script and those sinners carried it out. He was revealed in the flesh. The second statement, He was vindicated in the Spirit. You want to add a vocabulary word to your regular usage? I recommend vindication. He was vindicated in the flesh. What does that mean? I believe this is a statement about the resurrection. I'm sorry, he was vindicated in the spirit. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit. I believe this is a statement about the resurrection of Christ. Just like his fleshly life proved that he is Emmanuel. God is with us. So also, His life of impeccable perfection, of perfect God-pleasing obedience, of always keeping the two greatest commands, loving the Lord as God with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving His neighbor as Himself, a life of perfect obedience to the Father, which resulted in that Death that I just described where the King of Glory was mutilated for your crimes against God, not His own, was proven to be 
the atonement made by the long-awaited Messiah that the pages of the Old Testament talk to us about and the way God proved it, here's your word, he was vindicated. God did something that proved he is who he said he was. He was vindicated in the Spirit. That is, God snatched his lifeless body back to life everlasting by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was vindicated in the Spirit. As Tommy mentioned earlier, today is Palm Sunday on the church calendar, just one week away from celebrating Easter. The reminder that Jesus was in fact vindicated. He was raised from the dead. This verse emphasizes that Jesus' risen vindication is not our once annual message. This is our common confession. This is our constant message. In fact, I hate to underwhelm anybody who might be intending to visit on Easter Sunday and catches wind of this audio of this message, but it will be no different than last Sunday or the Sunday following Easter. We celebrate the resurrection together every Sunday. We live on Easter Sunday. Every day is Easter. Our King is vindicated. He's alive by the Spirit. So the first stanza, I believe, is about what Christ accomplished in His life his death, his resurrection. The second stanza, lines three and four, are about that accomplishment being made known. Look at that stanza. Christ's accomplishment being made known. He was seen by angels, and he was proclaimed among the nations. The word angels might mean heavenly beings, like angels. It might also mean messengers. People who announced it, same word is used for both in the New Testament. So whether it's a reference to the heavenly being, angels, which it very well may be, because I remind you, they were sitting on the rock that was supposedly impenetrably guarding the entrance to the tomb where he emerged alive, or they were inside sitting at the head and the foot, like at the Ark of the Covenant, the two angels over the mercy seat would sit over the Holy of Holies touching each other. The gospel writers are careful to tell us that when somebody stuck their head into the tomb at the head and the foot of the slab where Jesus's body, the real sacrifice was, there was an angel here and an angel here. So maybe it's talking about seen by those angels. There were also angels at his ascension in Acts chapter 1 who announced glad tidings of wonderful things to Christ's people. So maybe it's those angels, or maybe it's a reference to those hundreds of people who saw Jesus alive from the dead, who were still alive, most of them, I mind you, when the New Testament was written. You could have gone and asked any one of them if they actually saw what these Bible writers said that they saw. There's zero chance that it it, meaning the resurrection, he was seen by angels, was a figment of 
the imagination of dozens and dozens, literally hundreds of people. This is not a fairy tale made up imagination story. That all of his followers, I remind you, were willing and eventually died for proclaiming he was seen. Seeing the risen Jesus and being filled with the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is precisely what you need to happen to you. This is what changed Peter from a cowardly, pansy man who denied Jesus before a slave girl in Caiaphas' courtyard until when he saw Him and was filled by the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead, He was instantaneously changed into a preacher who proclaimed Christ before thousands at Pentecost. What changed? The risen Jesus. So I say again, this is what you need to happen to you. The operative question for your life, have you met the risen Jesus? The Gospel message that I'm trying my best to proclaim to you now is an absolute guarantee that one day very soon you will see Him. He was seen by angels. You must meet Him before it's everlastingly too late. The second part of that second stanza is He was proclaimed among the nations. That's because once people believe the pure gospel and meet the risen Jesus, power happens both in us and through us. It's the pattern of the Bible. Those who believe on Jesus speak of Jesus. That's because when there is a torrential flood of living water inside your soul, it cannot be contained in that reservoir. Where Jesus moves in, Jesus is made known. So he's proclaimed. That's a natural consequence. But this isn't only true of Christians telling about our God. This is true of non-Christians also. We talk about it here pretty often. Everybody's an evangelist. Everybody's promoting their God. Everybody talks about what they love. This is native to the human condition. You can't stop evangelizing. And you can't stop evangelism from happening. The question is, what are we promoting? Food and hobbies and entertainment and people and popularity and the list goes on. Christians similarly talk about Christ, proclaiming Him among the nations. The word nations is the same word for Gentiles. It's all the peoples. Not a tribal deity. This is some little Jewish message for some little enclave of humans in one little corner of the world. This is the one Savior for all peoples. At the time Paul wrote this sentence, he had already traveled the vast majority of the known world preaching this gospel. He had gone from Damascus to Arabia to Tarsus to Jerusalem to Antioch to Asia Minor to Macedonia to Rome. We know that these letters, the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, were among his last, 2nd Timothy being his final letter. He had been in prison in Rome. He was soon to be martyred, almost certainly by beheading. What these verses say is that proclaiming Jesus among the nations is what happened, and those who proclaimed Him, we know, did so at great cost. So let us drink ourselves sober on the truth of this verse. 
Why? Why did so many people in the first century give their life, literally, proclaiming this message? The answer is as obvious as it is compelling because the whole world, all men everywhere, are dead in their sins. Every single person who has ever lived, including the ones in this room, are hell-bound apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, He was proclaimed among the nations. The final stanza is so rich. It's the third part, it's the last couplet. He was believed on in the world and taken up in glory. This is the aftermath of the proclamation. It has the undeniable result of Gentile receptivity to the Gospel message. The world Again, not a tribal deity, the one Savior for all peoples, once proclaimed after being seen alive from the dead, after the incarnate God came in the flesh, as Jesus' work was seen, believed, and proclaimed, uh, seen and proclaimed, people believed. I love this line, believed on in the world. Because we need to remember that when God sends us out as sheep among wolves, and there may be many dangers, toils, and snares that God fully intends to use the proclamation of His church of the pure gospel to bring more people in to His fold. I remember when Paul was in Corinth in Acts 18, and a guy named Crispus got saved. He was the synagogue leader. A lot of people didn't, believe, didn't like that when he believed in the Lord with his household. That didn't make the Jews happy that their leader turned to Christ and said that if they wanted to know God, they would have to turn to Christ too. We're told in Acts 18.8 that many Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. That really stirred up the city to hate Paul. He stayed for 18 months, a year and a half. Was Paul afraid of what those people might do to him? Yes. So God gave him a word of encouragement to keep on preaching Christ. What was the encouragement? We're told that he settled there for a year and six months, Acts 18.11, because God said, no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. I agree with most commentators on that passage, many who've not yet believed. You just keep preaching, I'll keep saving. He was believed on in the world. God is sovereign. He's going to save His people. He's going to do it through the agency, means, and effort of His church proclaiming the Gospel. Even in a hostile world. But here's the good news where we end. No matter how hostile they may be to us and how much they may hate our Christ, Gospel ambassadors take heart. He was taken up in glory. This world doesn't get the final say. Paul explained to the Ephesian church that this power is at work in the lives of every Christian, meaning the same power. I don't mean like it. I mean the same 
power that God used to exalt Jesus to heaven, for him to be taken up into glory, to be given his rightful seat as the king of the universe. Heaven's throne glorified Jesus. That same power, Paul told the Ephesian church, is at work in them. When he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Paul prayed that their eyes would be open to see that that's the same power that he's exerting in his church. It's the capstone of the gospel. All the gospel events, what Jesus did and accomplished based on who he is and the message we proclaim, we believe in the living Jesus. We believe in the Jesus who right now is seated on heaven's throne. Right now, he reigns. Right now, he is glorified. He's the king of the universe. The gospel doesn't conclude with the resurrection of Jesus. That's the first fruits. That's the prelude of the final encore of God. When all of us will be like him. The only appropriate result to Jesus being vindicated by God through the Spirit's resurrection of him to life forevermore from the dead was God seating him on heaven's throne in what this phrase calls glory. Glory. This is what Jesus said he wanted the evening before he died. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was created. Glory. Taken up in glory. Among other things, this means Jesus has the highest name and the highest seat in the universe. This is the only appropriate response to who He is, His person, and what He has done, His gospel labors. To you, Jesus may seem inconsequential. He may seem little. He may seem light. He may leave no dent in you, though you've heard about Him 10,000 times. He may seem like a distant figure somewhere way back there a couple thousand years ago in human history that some people who can't get over it just keep talking about. But one day soon, you will agree. Habakkuk 2.14 that His glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. The glory into which He was taken up is soon going to be unleashed. God's going to take all the bricks out of the dam holding back that glory. He's going to unzip the floor of heaven, Isaiah 64, and fall on planet earth. He will break forth in every dimension of all of his manifold perfections. He will return. He will collect his bride. He will take the church to himself. We will not be able to unknow that we are the house in which God dwells. And when he comes, he will deal out retribution to all who did not obey the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1.8. And then, the same one who is taken up in glory, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He's coming to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed the gospel taken up in glory is actually a template. It's the prototype. This is the paradigm for what the church will soon enjoy. One day soon, like Him, we're going to enter what everybody's going to describe 
I mean everybody who belongs to Him as the unending joy of our Master. That's His glory. The two applications are so obvious. I pray they are. I see them in the text. Verse 16, believe this gospel. In verse 15, bring your whole life into accord with this gospel. Conduct yourself according to this gospel. And not you individually, you corporately. By living with God's people in the context of a local church where we hold up this truth high for all to believe, for all to see, for all to hear. We're going to sing one of the greatest, in my estimation, hymns in the English language. It's all about looking at Him. Be Thou My Vision. Let's sing it like we believe He's alive. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Pray that this church will be absolutely dominated by the glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ because You live here and You are the living God. Let us live like that is true. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Jesus. And we look forward to seeing His glorious face soon. It's in His name we pray.